This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. President Biden planning to announce that 90% of U.S. adults will be eligible to get a COVID-19 vaccine in three weeks, three weeks, and that his administration will more than double the number of pharmacies where shots are available. This is according to officials familiar with the matter. We are expected to hear from the president shortly. Tim, yeah, we'll we take be, everybody to D.C. when We should happens. be hearing from him in just a few minutes. We're also seeing some other headlines. The reason the, the president will be able to say that is because states like New York just mm-hmm. announcing that the vast majority of adults will be able to get vaccines starting very soon. Doesn't mean that they can get them, just right. that the, you know, they can have access to them. They're eligible to them. This comes, too, as the head of the CDC pleaded with Americans to wear masks again. Listen, hospitalizations are going up, cases are going up, and deaths, a lagging indicator, have also started to rise again. Let's bring in Dr. Heather Failing, Chief Scientific Officer at Clinical Reference Labs. She is on the phone in Kansas. Uh, Dr. Failing, nice to have you here with Tim and me. That bulk of headlines again, great that there seems to be more vaccines out there, not so great that cases, hospitalizations, uh, and the like are going up. How do you see it? Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And we definitely need to stay vigilant, you know, in our uh, mask wearing as well as in our testing measures. I think that's key, you know, keeping everyone safe and especially as the variants are, uh, you know, continuing to spread, uh, which is affecting transmissibility. Why do you think we are ste- seeing this uptick? Is it because people are, are, are just not being vigilant? We saw so many images in the last few weeks about spring breakers. People have been cooped up for more than a year at this point. Maybe people are, saw the numbers going down and thought they were safer than they actually are. Why do you think we're seeing it? Yes, I agree. I think it's all of that. I think we've seen a little bit of COVID fatigue. Folks are, you know, a, a little bit tired of all of the COVID measures. Uh, you know, we've come against spring break. And, and as well, you know, a lot of folks have, are getting the vaccine. Uh, you know, it's starting to cut down on some of the mask wearing, but they really need to, to stay vigilant and, um, uh, yeah, keep those measures up so we can really curb the spread. So we have to stay vigilant. We know that masks, social distancing. We're going to talk shortly with our own uh, Riley Griffin about a COVID pill that uh, could come from Merck uh, and kind of a way that would give us a new treatment and a weapon against coronaviruses and future pandemics. You guys are also involved in cre- creating tools in you know for ways for us to manage something like a COVID-19. Tell us about wearables and the role that they might play going forward. Oh, absolutely. And and here at Clinical Reference Lab, we're really excited by a partnership that uh, we've put into play with Stanford to use wearables for the early detection of COVID-19. And how this works is eligible study participants are provided a wearable that's made by Empatica, as well as 30 days of CRLs at home, saliva-based rapid response. What are CRLs? Uh, CRLs, it's, a, it's an at-home saliva-based collection kit for COVID-19, and it has FDA emergency use authorization for self-collection. And so the study is using the individual's biometric data from their wearable, like body temperature, heart rate, and even electrodermal activity, which are basically just micro sweats. Uh, It's a form of a stress sensor. And these metrics are then used to track changes that might indicate possible infection. 
and the CRL rapid response COVID testing comes into play uh, to confirm actual infection. So and in other words, can, like, is it going to track a higher temperature and then that could tell you to go get a test? Because I'm going to say, I get warm just running around this office. <laughs> so, so how is it something that's actually intuitive and actually may be a really reliable indicator that there's something more than just a spike in your temperature, a normal spike in your temperature? Right. And there are different levels of alerts. So the algorithm is programmed to, to understand that there could be temporary elevations caused by stress or, you know, alcohol or working out, things of that nature. And so um, it, it is trained to understand, you know, more serious alerts, and it will alert the user or the participant in the study, you know, are, have you had exercise, yes or no? And so it'll just kind of mark that. And then the more serious alerts, um, you know, they, they definitely need to, you know, do this serial rapid response test to confirm uh, potential infection there. Dr. Failing, how, how are you thinking about this being endemic when we're on the other side of this pandemic? Because it does feel like with, you know, what we're going to hear from the president reportedly, according to uh, sources who tell Bloomberg News, that 90 percent of the country has access to a vaccine or is eligible for a vaccine at this point, that we are getting close to to at least having the ability for almost every single American adult to ha- to get this vaccine. And if that is the case then we can be on the other side of this pandemic, like the president said, in July. Correct. I I think we are going to see that. And I think, you know, COVID will become more like a seasonal flu as it becomes endemic. And we'll need those booster vaccines that are variant specific and and just kind of a, a regular watch of symptoms. And that's why I think the wearables technology is so important because it's more of a passive testing technology. It's just sitting there in the background monitoring and it can then prompt you that, you know, something is amiss here. You need to pay attention and potentially get a test. And what's nice is it identifies you in that pre-symptomatic phase when you would be uh, you know, more higher to transmit the disease uh, as compared to other stages. Are you guys anticipating that uh, the likes of Apple and others, uh, some of these high-tech firms already, Apple Watch and some others that are out there, that this is going to be something that they're going to be pursuing? I'm, I'm curious if you guys are having any conversations with the likes of Apple and other high-tech companies about, you know, amping up their health monitoring applications. Oh, absolutely. And others are involved in in similar quests uh, for different uh, applications. Uh, Fitbit has has been involved, and even they've donated devices as part of Stanford studies. And um, as part of Stanford's program, if you do have a wearable, uh, you can actually go to the Apple App Store, and uh, there is an app there that you can download called MyPhD, and this is their study app. And it doesn't require a PhD, like the name says. It actually stands for My Personal Health Dashboard. And so you can download the app, enroll in the study, and then use your own wearable, uh, including an Apple Watch, to to monitor COVID-19 as well as, as other potential infectious diseases. What's the regulatory approval process like for this? Uh, you know, if you're using it in more of a general wellness sense, um, it's, it's not as strict, but correct. When you do get into disease diagnosis, uh, you know, you do need to pursue some sort of a regulatory pathway. Like an FDA, you have to get FDA clearance as a medical device? As, right. If you're doing a, a diagnostic, that's correct. And is this going to do that? Uh, I know there have been discussions about it. That's because it's kind of, it, that's why I ask about the idea of it's going to be endemic versus pandemic, because that type of process can take a significant amount of time. 
Right. It, it can take time, but, you know, I believe with the FDA, I mean, CRL, we've taken a test through the FDA, and with the emergency use authorization pathway, you know, that's a great pathway to speed the process of review and then authorization. Hey, one thing I'm curious, too, well, what does this cost? What will it cost an individual? Um, I'm not sure exactly on the cost of the app itself right now. It's mm. available for free for download. And, you know, we've talked with you in the past uh, about your COVID-19 saliva tests. In terms of it's been a year and counting since mm-hmm. uh, we all began all of this, what have we learned about those saliva tests and those, you know, tests in general that so many of us have done so many times? Uh, have they gotten better? Have we learned how to do them better? What have we learned in this process? Yes, I, I definitely think folks have, have learned to do them better. And uh, here at CRO, uh, we've done over 600,000 saliva tests in our lab. And we've really demonstrated uh, the utility and the accuracy of our saliva-based tests. And uh, since we've launched and since we last spoke, we've uh, partnered with um, DNA Genotech as well as the CDC and our local public health lab to do viral strain analysis. Mm. Um, so we've recently we've been learning a lot about the different strains that we've been seeing, and we're seeing Brazilian variants uh, like P2, the the UK variant, uh, California, and a whole host of others. So it's really been fascinating to look at those different variants and transmissibility within you know schools and workplaces. So vaccinations and uh, uh, testing are certainly a part of it, but another big part of it is is treatment. And in just a few minutes, a little later in the show, we're going to be speaking with our U.S. healthcare reporter, Riley Griffin, uh, about a great new piece that's in the magazine about Merck's COVID pill being a front runner in the elusive antiviral quest. How do you see treatments playing out over the next couple of years, considering the U.S. and the U.K. and Israel are really the only places in the world at this point that have huge, significant vaccine programs that are underway right now? I I think, yeah, treatment is definitely going to become key. And I think if we can get in a treatment that's similar to a Tamiflu, I I think we're going to go a long way uh, into combating uh, this virus. But I also think the early detection is is even, you know, also a, a big part. Yeah, good to know. Uh, Covered a lot of ground. Dr. Heather Failing, thank you so much. Chief Scientific Officer at Clinical Reference Labs joining us on the phone from Kansas. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The forced liquidation of more than $20 billion in holdings linked to Bill Huang's investment firm drawing attention to the covert financial instruments he used to build large stakes in the companies. The stock market may be largely shrugging it off, but the individual stocks that were the target of uh, his trades, they are not. Let's get into what you need to know, and certainly the banks involved are not shrugging this off. Srinath Arajan is finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. First of all, who is Bill Huang? Because all of a sudden we're talking about this individual that is not very well known to Wall Street, Shree, um, and kudos to you guys for breaking this. So what do we need to know? Try, try, try asking the who's Bill Huang question to Nomura and Ted Swiss, <laughs> They know, right? We get. <laughs> exactly. Look, uh, Bill Huang, uh, let's do a quick biography on him. In the 1990s, worked for Julian Robertson at Tiger, uh, went off to set off, his, uh, set off and started his own hedge fund, Tiger Asia, got the title of a so-called Tiger Cub. He was seeded by Julian Robertson. 
was doing really well and had charted a sharp rise and a quick rise, but then came 2012 when he was charged over insider trading. His hedge fund admitted to wire fraud and effectively had to shut down the hedge fund, return all the outside money, and turn into a family office. But since then, he seems to have had this improbable second chance where, again, he grew into a major force in the market, largely with the use of borrowed money to make massive, massive wages on a few concentrated positions. And uh, that's pretty much what has led us to this uh, breathtaking unraveling that we've seen over the last few days. Okay, so let's go back just to Thursday, Friday, and what happened last week specifically with Viacom, CBS, and, and, and Discovery. Talk to us about the big block trades there and, and why Huang was exposed. Sure. Uh, we're still trying to piece together exactly what all triggered this mad dash to unload stuff. But from what we understand, the main source of Huang's funding were these swaps that he had struck up with major Wall Street financiers, prime brokers from Goldman Sachs to Morgan Stanley to Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank and Nomura, which which allowed him to ha have, have a big exposure. Wednesday afternoon, we know that there was a Viacom equity deal that sent its stock slumping some 30 percent. Uh, there were some other moves that we speculate were also positions in which Wong was uh, present in a large visible manner that had also gone against him. This led to some panic at many of the big banks, which were worried about their exposure and whether margin limits were going to be breached. They tried to work out an arrangement, but by Friday it was clear that each on their own, they tried to save the collateral, make sure that they could find buyers for that block and stem their losses. From what we can see, Goldman Sachs seems to have uh, emerged from this incident. At least as of now, they're telling uh, some of their clients that largely unscathed. But on the other hand, you have places like Nomura, which says it has a $2 billion claim against this client, right. which could expose them to a significant loss in Credit Suisse, which hasn't put a figure to it, but has also clearly flagged that there is a big possible hit that they may have to take. Shriek, what strikes me in all of this is that if the Viacom news didn't come out and if Viacom shares didn't start to maybe tank, uh, that maybe we would have this wouldn't have happened and we would have never known uh, about a what seems to be a somewhat risky trade with incredible exposure that has gone horribly wrong. And it, it just makes me think about the system overall and the lack of checks and balances. Well, absolutely. As we as we pick up the pieces from this carnage and sort of move ahead from this point, one of the big themes that will play out, and I think something that the regulators may very well pay attention to, is this idea of unknown leverage. How is it that one family office could amass positions of this size in tens of billions of dollars without anyone really knowing about it? If you're a regular hedge fund that is going out and buying a 5% stake in a company, you need to, in a U.S. company, you would have to put out a filing, uh, then there are various SEC reports you have to file when you have outside money. Uh, the fact that he was using swaps, the fact that Bill Huang's, it was Bill Huang's family office and, not, and did not have any other outside money, you were left in a situation where none of those requirements apply, and you had a firm that was effectively a large whale in the market, and yet barely anyone talked about this firm and now everyone's sitting up mm -hmm. and taking notice that is a problem yeah i imagine regulators are going to be looking at that question 
pretty closely, Shri. I, I wonder when it comes to risk management, how a financial institution thinks about somebody who may have had some regulatory challenges in the past. Charged with insider trading. Yeah, thank you, Some Carol. regulatory challenges. I'm trying to... <laughs> I mean, how, is it rare that that's... Look, Wall Street is full of second acts and third acts, but is it rare that somebody of this profile would be able to build such a, a, a sizable war chest with several different banks, given like, his history? Like Goldman and Morgan and the venerable Wall Street firm, Shri? Well, look, I mean, uh, Tim, you do say that Wall Street's full of second chances and third chances, but just step away two blocks from Wall Street on the Main Street and ask people how, how often do people get that second chance and the third chance. Yeah. The question here really is, how did someone who was so publicly shamed over insider trading, hedge fund admitting to wire fraud, have such a rebound to become, become a big force in the market? Was the lure of the commission and the interest that flowed to all these dealers so blinding that they were all willingly happy to give uh, this firm a second chance. And maybe maybe the argument is right. These were crimes that took place in 2008, more than a decade had passed, and uh, it, was, it was okay to do business. But it is definitely something that does not sit well with everyone. Like, why would Wall Street be so eager and willing to do business with him? And what does it say about our markets if the repercussions for something as serious as the charges of insider trading are so minimal? Yeah, listen, I feel like there's lots of questions out there, and you have to wonder about the, the phone conversations and phones ringing, cell phones, you know, the text messages and ringing with David Solomon over at Goldman. Everybody who heads up one of these firms, like, what's our position? Uh, what's our risk here? Uh, and all of their risk teams kind of looking at the situation and how it got there. Shri, unbelievable reporting. You guys breaking this, you breaking this. Uh, our finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Let's get into our next story because uh, it's in the magazine. It's a story about Merck's COVID pill. And Tim, it's about how it could be a front runner in the world's elusive antiviral quest. This might be just another tool in the toolkit that we need. Yeah, and we need a big toolkit with a global mm -hmm. pandemic. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us on the remote from Brooklyn. Riley Griffin, U.S. healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from here in New York. Joel, we talked about vaccines. We heard from the president just now about the vaccination efforts. Where does treatment fit in? Well, we haven't had any reason for it to fit in, and that's because we just have not had that many um, tools in the pipeline. And that's what's significant about the story that Riley and her co-author, uh, Cynthia Coons, uh, brought to this week's uh, issue of the magazine, um, which, you know, there's this little pill that Merck has been developing. It's one of several hundred different varieties of, of treatments that are basically underway right now, but based on, on the reporting, we think Merck's is maybe closest to some data, um, which could be forthcoming within a matter of days. And that will really give us a look at um, what we all hope is another chapter in this fight against COVID, which um, would start to look like treatment, something that you could give someone when they get sick, um, that's different than a vaccine. Obviously we need the vaccines too, but what happens if someone has a vaccine, uh, is vaccinated and gets sick, or for all of those people out there who, who might not have a vaccine. And that's where this Merck development comes in. So, so Riley, talk to us a little bit about what an antiviral, what's the promise of an antiviral like this? 
antiviral is that hundreds of thousands of people continue to contract COVID each and every day. So we need those therapies um, to get to patients quickly at the beginning of their disease. Cynthia, my colleague, and I like to frame this as Tamiflu for COVID, something that could be deployed broadly to your sister, your grandparent, those high risk, those low risk um, at the earliest course of their disease. As you said, there are hundreds of antivirals in development, 250 about, so to speak. Um, And viruses are really uniquely difficult to attack with drugs. I don't think we, you know, in the press speak enough about the complexity of developing therapeutics. These viruses hijack human cells and set up machinery to churn out copies of themselves within the body, which creates a real challenge. How do you destroy the virus without harming those cells? And success when it comes can be quite fleeting because as we've already seen, viruses mutate to survive. So Merck is the leader of the pack. We could see data before the end of the month. Um, Should it prove safe and effective, which is a real question, um, it's likely to be, that data is likely to be the backbone of an emergency use authorization here in the U.S. So if it happens for emergency use authorization here in the U.S. and and we're at a point where we've like been really gotten, done a good job with becoming vaccinated, does then that does that then mean that this moves into the global fight against COVID? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. For one, I think there will still be need here. We've got a, a great population that's vaccine hesitant. We've got um, a, a population under the age of 16 that doesn't have access. But globally, this is definitely necessary. And compared to some of the other tools out there, like the monoclonal antibodies, like Gilead's remdesivir, it's also poised to be much cheaper of an alternative. It's not an hours-long infusion that is required to be given in specialized settings. Um, It's what we call a small molecule, which means the manufacturing is much more simple, and Merck says it can churn out about 10 million courses, which is 100 million pills. You take it twice a day for five days um, within the span of this year. But in our interviews, Merck also said, and mind you, Merck is so global health oriented, they said that they want to create licenses that basically allow other manufacturers to make this pill too, should it prove safe and effective, thereby um, creating greater access worldwide. Well, let's just stick with Merck here because um, Merck is very well known for its public health work. Uh, It fell short on its vaccine efforts. What's at stake here for for Merck when this data comes out? Joel, that was a a big disappointment earlier in the year when Merck's two vaccine candidates both showed lackluster data in early clinical trials. I think they need a big win, not just because they want to put their stamp on the pandemic and show that they can have an impact here, too. Of course, they're helping manufacture J&J's vaccine. But let's think longer term about Merck's business model. This is a company that has become highly reliant on one product alone, Keytruda, a cancer product um, that is making up a a great chunk of their revenue. And investors keep asking what's next in the pipeline. So Molnipiravir could partially be that. And I think what Merck has said to us, um, they're very eager to know, is whether this has broad spectrum activity. What does that mean? Can this pill work not just in COVID-19, but in other coronaviruses, in other viruses, period, think Ebola? And if it does have that broad spectrum activity, and mind you, that's quite rare, Mm. um, it could certainly be 
more like a $10 billion drug rather than a $1 billion drug per year. What about, and I know the company is studying a variety of dosages as you report, but what about risk concerns? And I'm wondering, is this the kind of thing you've got to wait a couple of years to really understand uh, the risk impact? So the the greatest risk that we've heard broadly from the scientific community comes to genetic mutations. And that's back to the fact that this is a kind of drug, it's called a nucleoside analog, that basically works by interfering with the replication of the virus by inducing errors into the virus's RNA that are then replicated until it's defunct. Put much more simply, somebody explained this in this analogy, if you put a grain of sand into the gears, you might stop its motion, but you don't know where the sand ends up elsewhere in the body. Um, That has been a concern. This molecule has been around for decades, so that's been a concern for a little while, but Merck, they're a very conservative presence in the pharmaceutical industry, and they have conducted a number of tests um, to to study whether this could potentially be uh, caused genetic mutation. And they say the data thus far is clear. Of course, everybody's going to be looking for that in the phase two, three data that comes out within days. But from what we know now, Merck is confident and comfortable. And some who have previously been critical of molnupiravir have actually changed their tune since Merck came in um, to the picture and actually began developing this alongside a smaller biotech. And let's just talk about that smaller biotech for a second, because I always think these stories are, are amazing. Like, t- take us back uh, even longer just than quickly, a year though. ago <laughs> at the beginning of uh, before the pandemic uh, uh, struck, Riley. And, and what was um, what was how did this all come together? What was what were the players? Who were the players? Just got about 35 yeah. seconds, Riley. Yeah, this is a little bit of pharma industry 101. A lot of the time, big pharmaceutical players come in and they actually acquire or they license assets from smaller biotechs. In this case, that biotech was Ridgeback Bio. And if you take, if you go back to the outset of January 2020 at one of the world's biggest healthcare conferences, JP Morgan, there, um, the chief executive officer of Ridgeback Bio, Wendy Holman, was meeting in a hotel in San Francisco with George Painter of Emory University. And she actually cut a deal with Emory for the, for the drug. Right. Two months later, it was in Merck's hands. So that's yeah. the, the story history. There's a lot that goes into it. Check out the story. It's incredible. Guys, thank you so much. Jill Weber, Riley Griffin. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about uh, nine minutes left in today's trading session. Let's do the drive to the close. David Dietz back with us, managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management, $8 billion in assets under management. David joining uh, Tim and myself once again on the phone in Summit, New Jersey. David, nice to have you here. Uh, what's interesting is we are focused big time 
on uh, this hedge fund, uh, actually family office, and this kind of unwinding of $20 billion worth of trades. I'm just curious, um, we're talking about Archegos uh, Capital Management. We're all kind of continuing to gather more and more information, but it helps explain some of the crazy trading that we saw in some names like Viacom and others last week. What's your view on this? You're someone who's been trading in, in the markets for a long time. How do you see it? What is it that we need to know from your perspective? So, Carol, good to be with you and Tim. Um, so we're watching this closely. We don't have all the facts. Uh, I think it's obviously not a positive for the markets, but I would caution our clients and investors generally not to overreact. A couple of rules of thumb. One is hedge fund implosions, unfortunately, are not an infrequent occurrence on the landscape, but typically they do not um, provide systemic, cause systemic uh, crisis. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing here. Um, we're seeing extreme volatility in some media names, Viacom and Discovery as two of them, and of course some of the, the Chinese tech stocks. But overall, uh, you know, the market is, the Dow is in positive territory today. The Dow ended up strongly on Friday after the news first broke. We're seeing some volatility in the, the banking names, um, which is worth watching. But again, we're not hearing or seeing anything that would cause a systemic risk. Um, going forward, what would I watch for? One is, you know, to what extent does this cause banks to be a little bit more cautious in lending, which perhaps is a slight a cloud on the recovery here. And, of course, we're coming up to these all-important stress tests when the Federal Reserve is going to be looking at all the banks and deciding who can um, start returning money to shareholders and who can't. And maybe those stress, stress tests will be tightened a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit less cash in the coffers of the banks to distribute, even if they pass a stress test. So that's something I would, I would uh, watch closely. But, you know, I don't think it changes the long-term positive themes here. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, long-term positive themes, Dave, David, because we, we have this conflicting sort of outlook when it comes to coronavirus. Vaccinations, on the one hand, are going really well, three days in a row of more than three million doses each day. Some great stats shared by the president earlier in the day about just how many people and how quickly are getting vaccinated. At the same time, though, we are seeing cases go up and hospitalizations go up in some areas. How concerned are you about a potential fourth wave? Well, it's definitely on our radar. It's probably, of course, was the factor in causing the downturn last year. It's been the factor as the vaccines were announced to lift us out of it. You know, I think investors have to realize it was never going to be one, two, three, four, five. Rather, it's like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. So I think the good news is we're having a, a great, at least in this country, uh, rollout of the vaccines. We've got three now, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. &J. I think AstraZeneca will soon be approved. Novavax is on the horizon. You know, here's what we have to watch for. Of course, is the fact that there's lagging vaccination overseas. To what extent does that blowback in the United States? To what extent is that a damper on international trade? Of course, you've got the mutations. To what extent do the current vaccines going to handle that? We're, we're optimistic, but you got to watch it. And of course, I think we're realizing now that we've got to get the approval for the use of these vaccines with the kids, because without the kids being vaccinated, we're going to be unlikely to develop herd immunity. And that's going to be the final nail in the coffin, we hope, 
uh, in terms of this epidemic. So, um, David, when it comes to trading in the equity market, do you set up for you continue the recovery trade, uh, or do you do a much? Do you be a little bit cautious here because we don't know if we'll get another wave? How do you play it? Yes. Yeah, so. Um, we remain constructive here. Basically, as we just discussed, COVID-19 progress going well, and ultimately we have the low interest rates. Now, I know they just touched another 2021 high here, just over 1.7%, but basically that's still low interest rate. It doesn't get retirees to where they need to be. It doesn't allow endowments and charitable funds to make the distributions they want. So we still think that there's a wall of money into stocks. And guess what? This economy is recovering. The forecast for GDP, 6% or more. Corporate earnings going to be as much as 25% up versus last year and another 10% last year. So we really think that if you roll up your sleeves, there's lots of opportunities relative to keeping cash under the mattress. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, what areas of the market, mm-hmm. well, you, you want to be diversified. But on the other hand, you know, last year growth was scarce during a pandemic, so people chased the mega cap techs. This right. year, I think growth is going to be more plentiful, so you can go for the value plays. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, David, thanks. David Dietz, he's Managing Principal, Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.